I am looking forward to our study in the book of 1 Timothy, and I imagine that as you have been reading along with Gabe from week to week, you see how some of those passages are rather complex, correct? Uh, Today certainly being one of those passages. And Lord willing, we'll have a better understanding of what Paul was writing to that young pastor, Timothy, uh, in his day. Of course, those words are applicable to us today. Please understand that the complexity of what you read in the scriptures should not be an excuse for not reading the scriptures. One of the beautiful things about church is that we actually are able to better comprehend the scriptures as a result of being together and studying the word of God. And so that's what we will do. We are doing that this morning. We will continue to do that for the weeks to come, the years to come as well. This morning, our text will be in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And let me just mention this. I do believe that many Christians are afraid of serving God because they, they fear, they fear, they're afraid of God, of what God would have of them. Uh, many people are afraid that if they were to commit themselves to serving God, that God would infringe on their free time that it would chip away at their me time. And, well, the truth is, you're right. (laughs) It will. But that's not something to be afraid of. It's actually something you will delight in when you see that your time, your free time, is being used for the things of God, for the kingdom of God. Some people are afraid of serving God because they're afraid of where God is going to send them. Say, oh no, God is going to send me to a place I don't want to go. I know that on occasion I'm invited to go abroad to preach or to teach somewhere. And, um, and the only reason I'm invited is because I'm willing to go to various places. And what I'm surprised is how often I'm asked to go somewhere I really never wanted to go. <laughs> and I'm like, Lord, but there are so many other places I could serve you. You sure you want to send me there? (laughs) I won't mention the country. But I seem to get invited there quite often. Some people are afraid of being sent to a city, to a country, to a house. They just don't want to go to. Lord, please, not me. Send somebody else. Some people find themselves afraid because they fear that they're going to be over their heads. That there's going to be a task to do that they don't know how to accomplish. I don't know how how to answer that question. I don't know how to do this or that in the name of Christ on behalf of the kingdom of God. And so they're afraid. Send somebody with me or send somebody else. And some people are afraid to serve God because they know that in serving God, you have to deal with people. And people can be rather messy. Agreed? People are afraid, Christians are afraid of having to deal with situations and, uh, that, that are, well, less than agreeable or lives that are very broken and, and messy. It's just uncomfortable. And so as a result, people say, you know, I would really like to serve God, but I think somebody else could do a better job. So I'll let that person do that better job. But in all reality, Christian, there, there comes a point in every Christian's life where you have to ask yourself, how is my life a service to God? 
How is my life a service to the Lord Jesus Christ? What difference am I making for the kingdom of God? Have you asked yourself that lately? What difference are you making for the kingdom of God? It's an important question. At the end of the day, my friends, serving God means that you are going to have to trust your master, Jesus Christ. It is truly a matter of trust. And I know that trusting can be rather difficult. Trusting a God you cannot see can be very difficult. The wise King Solomon knew this to be the case. He knew that trusting in God was a challenge for him. And look at what he writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1. I think the verse is there for you. You don't even have to look it up. Ecclesiastes 9.1 reads, reads this way. This is what he concludes. He says, But all this I laid in my heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. Solomon here is pointing to the uncertainty of the future. We don't know what the future is going to bring. And that makes it very difficult to trust in anything or anyone. Uncertainty. Here Solomon says that both love and hate is going to come our way. And the truth is, is that every single one of us here would like to control which one and in what amounts come our way. We want to control how much hate we're faced with. And certainly we want to be able to say much love is coming our way. And here Solomon says they're both coming. We just don't know how much of either. It's all in the hand of God. The righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Well, to better understand what Solomon writes here in chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes, let's go backwards in our Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 33. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there's one there somewhere in that row in front of you. And in fact, if you need a copy of the Bible, we have Bibles in the foyer. You could help yourself. One should be suffice. Deuteronomy is on the left side of your Bible. It's about five books in from the left. And if you go towards the very end of Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 3, you'll land exactly where you ought to be. As you're looking for Deuteronomy 33, let me explain to you what's happening in this chapter. This is the final address of Moses to the people of Israel. Now keep in mind that Moses has led the people of Israel now for some 40 years. In fact, in the next chapter, Moses dies. This is the end for him. And here in chapter 33, he blesses the people of Israel, the people he's been leading out of Egypt and into the wilderness, and now at the door of the promised land, he blesses them with this long speech, all of chapter 33. And he tells them about how God is at their side. God is with them. What a blessing. Now, I do find it interesting that he blesses the people of Israel. He doesn't curse them. And I say that because for 40 years... These people have been a handful, to put it mildly. They've been a rough crowd. 
It has been one challenge after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other, decade after decade for four decades. These people have been hard. In fact, at one point, Moses, towards the end of his experience, towards the end, after doing so well for so long, he loses his temper, he does what he's not supposed to do, he disobeys God, he loses his patience. And now, Moses is not allowed to enter the promised land. He's going to die and be buried outside of the promised land. And yet... He still blesses them. Charles Spurgeon writes that though the people greatly provoked his spirit, Moses was always meek and tender, and this is the end of it all, that he would dismiss them with his blessing. What an example of humility to us. In fact, the Bible says that Moses was the most humble man on the earth. And I think that would still hold true today. Maybe you've topped them. I don't know. But if you think you did, you lose. (laughs) Humility is one of those qualities that as soon as you realize you have it, you lose it. Well, he begins here, verse 1. Actually, verse 2, he begins the blessing. And the blessing begins with a description of the theophany at Mount Sinai. A theophany is a theological term that simply refers to God revealing himself, God manifesting himself. And if you look there at verse 1, you see it's quite a description. It, It reads this way. He said, or Moses said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten, from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. And what a magnificent description this is. Here Moses says that God came and manifested himself some 40 years earlier to the people of Israel in this great flooding light, this brilliant light. And it says here that he comes down from up high with myriads of angels, holy ones, adding to the grandeur of the event if the presence of God can be added to. God comes, if you notice there, verse 2, with a flaming fire in his right hand. And here, again, is language that's being used to help us understand God, because we all know God is spirit. God does not have a right hand. He does not have a left hand. But it's anthropological language, putting God in human terms so that humans could better comprehend what happened. It's a descriptive language trying to convey things that are just unexplainable in human terms. Now, I do find it interesting, for those of you who like reading and studying the scriptures in in more detail, if you make a comparison between the ESV and the NIV and other translations of the uh, Hebrew scriptures, you'll notice there that that phrase, at his right hand, is a rather difficult phrase to translate. And so some versions, NIV in particular, says that God came from the south. From the south does not sound anything like at his right hand. Now, does it? Well, if you were to read it in the Hebrew, what it refers to is, possibly refers to, 
is that in that culture, in that time, when you refer to someone coming from the South or you were pointing to the South, you would use your right hand. The South. You would not say the South. Is that the South? No, that's the South. You would say the South and not the South. And so it could very well be translated that way, but I think the English Standard Version does a better job when it renders it at his right hand. He held a flaming fire. Quite a picture, isn't it? Quite a picture. Now, there are various truths that are now going to pop up at us at verse 3, and we're only going to take a look at one verse. Verse 3, some of you are looking at, at Daniel, I'd rather Deuteronomy chapter 33, you're saying, well, that's pretty long. We're going to be here for a long time. And he's just getting started. Well, we are only looking at one verse. Okay, you can sigh. Go ahead. You feel better? Here we go. Chapter 33, verse 3. There are various truths I want you to witness this morning about God, the God who calls you to serve him. Uh, these truths listed here are all part of the blessing that Moses gives to the people of Israel because they are the people of God. Okay? I have five for you. It's all there in this verse. You're looking at them yourself right now. I'm going to underscore each one. And here's the first one. Why can you serve God without fear? Why is it that you could say, yes, I will serve the Lord. And I don't have to be afraid of serving the Lord. Here's reason number one listed here in this verse. Because God loves his own. God loves his children. Moses explains here, look at verse 3. He explains with all certainty, there's no doubt whatsoever at all. He says, yes, God loved his people. And the reason he loved his people is because his people are his people, his people, his children. Now, it is true that in one sense, God loves all the people in all of the world. In the sense that he loves all that he has created. Remember when God created, he said, it is good. So there is a sense in which God loves everyone, but that is certainly not what we see here. What we see here is a love for a particular people, a specific people, a people he has called to be his own. And it is not just a general sense of love, but it is an enduring covenantal love that he gives to his people. A particular specific love to a particular and specific people, his children. It's a fulfilling love. It's a rescuing love. It is not a sentimentality. It is a people he chose to make his own, a people he covenanted with, a people who now he will provide for. A promise he has made to no others in history at this point. But he has with these people. And so Moses writes, yes, God loved his people. They were one nation, the nation of Israel. But varied people within that nation, young and old, tall and short, male and female. Some were rich, some were poor. Some were intelligent, some were simple. Whatever the case, these were the people of God. 
Though varied, all are equal in God's eyes. And all have equal participation in God's love. It's a wonderful truth. But what makes it even more wonderful as we sit here and look at this passage is that that same love is now translated onto his church. Not to America. Oh, that would be nice. But to the church. The church of Jesus Christ. This is what we see God recreating in the church of Jesus Christ. Take a look at Galatians chapter 3, if you will, in your New Testament. Galatians chapter 3, beginning of verse 28. I'll wait a few seconds for you. Galatians 3, 28. says that to those who put on Jesus Christ, it reads... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. It's not that there are no distinctions among us. Some of you are actually taller than me. Not too many but I do look up to you. There are distinctions, but these distinctions have no bearing on how God sees us. Your standing before God is no different than mine. We are all equal in the love and in the calling of God. We are equally his children. The slave is equal, just as equal as the free man. In these verses, we see that the pagan Gentile is equal, just as the religious Jewish believer is equal. Women and men, though distinct, they stand equal as well. In one complementing way, one complements the other. It's awful when we try to take away the distinction between male and females. What a beautiful creation God has made that one would complement the other. And even that we want to destroy. In the church, we complement each other. Not by saying, oh, what a nice blouse. Oh, what a nice tie. Well, we don't wear ties anymore. Oh, what a nice shirt. (laughs) Some wear ties. I see it. (laughs) No, we complement each other in the sense that we, we... come together we are equals but distinct and one does what the other cannot do we complement my friends verse 29 makes it very clear if you are in Jesus Christ then you are in God's circle of beloved family why can you serve God without fear Because you are in the circle of God's beloved family. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. And because of that, nothing but nothing could separate you from the love of God. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 8. I trust it's a a passage you've heard and maybe know very well. Look at how it reads. Chapter 8 of Romans, verse 36. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble or hardship or persecution or famine... 
or nakedness or danger or sword? What's the answer? Nothing. In fact, that's what we read in verse 37. He says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors, though through him who loved us. More than conquerors through him who has loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So do not fear serving God because he does love you. Secondly, notice here in the same verse that in his love, God also molds his children. He molds us. He molds us. It was Martin Luther, the reformer, who said, God kindly draws men to himself and is tolerant of their shortcomings. He gives of himself and is even present with them and extends to them his grace and friendship. That's our good God. Part of God's kindness is seen in that he does not leave us to ourselves. Isn't that a good thing? Imagine if your parent left you to yourself when you were five years old. God does not leave us to ourselves. He molds us like a potter does to the clay on a turning wheel. He molds us. And sometimes that pressure is uncomfortable, but he molds us because he loves us, because he's kind to us. Look at what we see here, verse 3. It says, all his holy ones were in his hands. Just as he did with Israel, he does with his church. He molds us. We are in his hands. First, he separates us from the rest of the world. And he puts his stamp of ownership on us. He calls us holy. You know, holiness can and often does mean that we are... um, weaned from sin you're holy you're you're moving away from what is wrong but more naturally and more commonly the word holy simply means you're separated and not like everybody else you are my holy people the lord says in other words it doesn't mean that we are all uh, righteous and, and we have halos around our heads but rather god has taken his people and separated us from the rest of the world says you are mine Not too long ago, we had some company at at the house, and and my wife broke out the holy dishes. Those are the dishes we don't normally use. Those are the dishes we only use when there's special company. It's not the everyday common-use dishes. It's separated for a particular purpose, use, and time. And here God calls his people holy ones, and we are holy ones in the hands of God, separated for his purposes. And in doing so, he molds us so that there is a gradual metamorphosis occurring in the Christian's life. A transformation. The transformation we heard about a few weeks ago when Chris was preaching from Romans 12.2 says, be transformed. 
by the renewing of your minds. Because what your mind says, your hands do. So the transformation begins here in how we think, how we believe. Now, Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 23, it reads this way. Let the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. God is molding you. The question is, are you the clay that keeps jumping off the wheel? It's so easy for clay to develop feet and jump off the wheel. That's what we do often. This is very uncomfortable. I did not want to become that, Lord. I was hoping to become such and such. And God says, no, no, you are going to become a... He knows what he's doing. He's the good God, the wise God. God does have a purpose for saving your soul, my friend. And, and that purpose extends beyond rescuing, rescuing your soul from hell. His purpose is that he wants to mold you so that he can use you for his good. So it is out of love that he molds you so that you'll be able to do the very works which he has prepared for you to do. Look at what we read in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, For we are the workmanship, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So before he saved your soul, in fact, before your soul even existed, God already had a to-do list on his celestial refrigerator door for you. Says, this is what I expect of you. This is why I'm saving your soul. Now, there's a benefit to you. You enter eternal life in my presence. We call that heaven. But meanwhile, there's work for you to do, and here it is. Serve God. I'm molding you so that you can serve me. And you're not independent, my friends, of God. You're not independent either of this molding process. You see, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says that God will finish what he has begun. Correct? He will. He will save your soul completely. But look at what chapter 2, verse 12 says. There we read, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You see, the Christian is very much involved in that sanctification process in which God molds us. And how do we participate? By submitting ourselves to Christ. Your will be done over mine. Submit yourself to Christ so that he will mold you into what you need to become. How are you doing? Are you being molded? At, at what pace? I'm going to guess we all are. That's my prayer. The question is at what pace? At what pace am I being molded? Well, not only does God love us and mold us, and therefore we should be willing to serve him, but notice here too, in that same portion of that text, God protects his children. He also protects his children. Why should I not be afraid of serving God? Because God does protect his own. Those who are in God's service are protected by God for his purposes. Now, underscore that in your mind, for his purposes. That does not mean that you will not suffer. 
That does not mean that you're going to live forever on this earth. No, there's going to be a day in which every single one of us here will die. But God will see you through till that day, whether it is in 25 years or in two days. God will preserve you according to his purposes. He will protect you. Why? Look at verse 3. His children are in his hand. His protecting hand. It's not just a molding hand. It's a protecting hand. In Isaiah chapter 62, 3, we read this. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Have you ever held a crown in your hand? I have not. But usually when we think of crowns, we think of crowns being laid on a head, right? But here it says that you will be a crown, a diadem, a beautiful crown in the hand of God. Something something valuable, something beautiful, but being secured in the grip of Jesus Christ. That's who his church is. You are the crown of beauty grasped in the mighty hand of God. William J. writes this. He says that we are not safe because of our strength, but because of our situation, because of our position. We, we are not safe because we are strong, but we are safe because of the position we've been placed in. And what is that position? We are situated in the hand of God. Is there a better place to be? Absolutely not. Where are most people? Outside of God's grip outside of God's protection. My friends, count it all joy because you are called to be in his grip. And there's no safer, no better place to be. Don't try to squirm your way out. In fact, you cannot. John chapter 10, verse 27 says this, and then verse 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. There is nothing more protected by God in this world than your soul. Amen. Your soul is secure, child of God. Your soul is more secure, is more protected than Fort Knox. And all that's in there. Those who belong to Christ belong to Christ. And Satan is powerless against the grasp of God, even as your own sin is powerless as well. You cannot outsin God's grace. The more you sin, the more grace you receive. But don't tempt God. Those who try to sin more in order to get more grace show that they were never in Christ in the first place. You see? God knows how to take care of his own until he brings you home. Do not fear being in the service of God. Do not fear his will. But This little verse here, just this one verse here, gives us two more truths that I think we should consider, I think there are are truths that really warm the heart of the person who 
is looking to know more of God. Uh, and, and I think these verses here, this verse here, these truths here, actually will help to better convince you that you can and ought to not be afraid of serving God. Look at what else we see here. We see that we do not have to fear serving God because God leads his children. He leads his children. Uh, we read there that what Moses wrote, he says, So they followed in your steps. That is to say that God led the way. And all his people had to do is what? Follow. Show me the way. I'm notorious with direction. I need a GPS. And, and, and what I've discovered is that the more I use the GPS, the more dependent I am on the GPS. But the GPS, even so, is always telling me, make a U-turn. Make a U-turn. Sometimes it says in English, sometimes in Portuguese, sometimes I put it in Spanish, just for the fun of it. Make a U-turn. In whatever case, I need to make a U-turn. It leads, but more so than the GPS, God leads his children. And all we have to do is follow. In fact, God leads his children like a sighted man leads a blind man. Have you ever watched that? Maybe you've been that person. The lead for a blind person. I was surprised to learn not too long ago of how the famous song, I think it was 1972, by Simon and Garfunkel, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, is actually about how Art Garfunkel became the eyes for a good friend of his while at the uh, Columbia University in Manhattan. Uh, a fellow by the name of Sanford Greenberg. They were best of friends, and while in school, Greenberg uh, suddenly becomes blind and wants to quit school and does quit school. Art Garfunkel actually went back to his house and knocked on his door and says, you're coming back, and I'm going to be your eyes. And Garfunkel was just that. He became the eyes for his best friend. And so when his friend fell, he would uh, clean up the wound and bind it up. When his friend needed to fill out paper, uh, forms, he would fill it. When the man needed to get on a bus in Manhattan, Garfunkel was there taking him to the bus stop. He was the eyes for his friend, and apparently till this day, they are still best of friends. But greater than the friendship of these two men is the friendship of God to his children. And he will lead you. He is the one with vision. We are the blind, and he will lead us. Isaiah 42.16 makes that very clear. Look at what we read there in the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. And I will lead the blind, that's us, in a way that they do not know. That's usually me. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. Amen, brothers and sisters. God leads the blind. He will lead you. And if God leads you, you can be sure that he is going to lead you to the proper place. I will not forsake you, he says. And yes... Our Lord is patient with those who are either leery of serving him or too lazy to serve him. He is patient, but he is not tolerant in the sense that he looks and says, oh, that's okay. 
You see, there, there's a big difference between patience and tolerance, right? Patience says, I'll wait for you to change. Tolerance says, well, I guess that's just the way it is. I just got to put up with it. God is not tolerant. He is patient. He is patient. Christ leads you by equipping you. Some of you have naturally born skills. All of us who profess Christ have spirit-given abilities as well, by which we can serve the community of believers, the church. He also equips you by giving you certain propensities, certain desires. And sometimes God equips you to serve him by forcing you to respond, by putting you in a situation which now you need to respond. What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? How will you serve God? And God enables us so that we can trust him. You see, when God enables us, gives us certain abilities, he makes us put trust into action. It's one thing to say, I trust you. It's another thing to actually put it into action. And you'll discover that often God forces us to display what's in the heart. Do I really trust you? Here's yet another opportunity. Here we're told that God's people receive direction from him. He leads us. He leads us. And then there's one final reason why we can trust the Lord when he calls on us to serve him. And notice there, that same verse, that God also corrects his children. He corrects us. Receiving direction has greater meaning here than simply being, uh, again, a GPS for, for life. Uh, recall the context here of what Moses is, in, in which Moses is writing. This is the context in which there was that great theophany in which God manifested himself. God showed himself to the people. He appeared at Mount Sinai, verse 2. And, and there he gave to them what? The law, the Ten Commandments. He gave to them his law. And the law of God not only guides us, but the law of God also corrects us. We can serve the Lord without fear because we know that the word of God is going to correct us. And God's divine law is actually a display of God's love towards you, of God's mercy, of his care. We see in the law of God the fact that he actually cares about us. Now, so many people, especially if you're young, you tend to think that the law of God is actually an obstruction. It will keep you from doing what you want to do. So, some people think it's going to be an obstacle to my pleasure. Um, some people say all it is is a way of guilting me, of making me feel bad. But keep this in mind. If it were not for the law of God, we would perpetually and consistently live against God. The law of God actually shows to us, because we are blinded by human nature, the law of God actually shows to us what we must do in order to do what is right before God. If you do not have the law of God, you will never know what to do 
how to be right before God. And in every single human being, every single one of us here in this room, there is a Christ-shaped hollow. A hollow that only Christ alone can fill. And unless you know his law, unless you know his word, you will never know how to fill that hollow. Christ fills the hollow and the law shows you how. And not only that, but the law of God also shows us how much we need a Savior. You see, the law of God points to our sinfulness. Every time we break the law, we are told, you're a sinner. The law of God points to our sinfulness. It's a constant reminder that we need his grace. The law of God is a constant reminder that I am in need of forgiveness, that I, you, need a Savior. Take away the law, and you'll never know that you're a sinner. You may feel it, but you'll never know it. But the law of God actually proves to us that we need a Savior. And the law of God actually directs us to the Savior. And the law of God shows us how we can come and approach the Savior and know life, eternal life, true life. You see, the law of God is very good. The law of life, the law, the law of God corrects us. It is precious because it tells us what no one else and nothing else would ever dare do or could. You are a sinner, the law tells us, and you need Jesus Christ to save you. Psalm 1910 reads this way. It says, Your law is sweeter than honey and more to be desired than fine gold. Why? Because the law of God takes us to Christ. It becomes sweeter than honey, and honey is pretty sweet. Now, how many times, if you were given the option, the law of God or fine gold, how many of you, how often would you choose the law of God instead? You see, it's our human propensity to say, well, give me the fine gold. I'll get back to God's law a little later. It'll still be there. I'll take the gold, thank you. Wisdom dictates this. The law of God is greater than fine gold because it brings you to a place of knowledge of God and even salvation. It will correct us. It will place us where we ought to be. You see how important it is? Now imagine if we were to look at the whole blessing, the whole chapter. We're going to stop right there at verse 3, which takes us all the way back to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1, where we started. And Solomon said, But all this I laid to heart, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. It is true, the uncertainty of the future makes us very uncomfortable. The uncertainty of serving God can make us very frightened. But I can say this. Serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your passion. Serve him, and by serving him, I'm not just saying praise and worship him during a week or read his word or pray. I'm saying actually make yourself useful within the kingdom of God. Make your life count for the things of Christ. Serve him. 
And there you will know more of God, and there you will find your contentment. Keep this in mind, that God is, God does exist. And that God does know you, he does know your life, and it does matter to God who you are and what you do. So as we see here, be righteous, be wise, serve God, serve him. Let me pray. Our Lord and Savior, thank you for the wise words of one man many centuries ago, for the words that you put in his heart and now are inscribed for our ears and eyes. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God who loves and who molds and protects, the God who leads and corrects. We thank you, Lord. May we all diligently serve you because of who you are. In your name we pray, O Lord. Amen.